This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 516th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the great singer-songwriters and rock stars of the last 35 years, Lenny Kravitz. Described by Billboard as possessing unwavering cool, by The Independent as the last of the great rock stars, by Men's Health as the last mass cultural rock star still standing, and by VH1 as one of the 100 all-time greatest artists of hard rock, Kravitz has sold more than 40 million records, had two singles crack the top 10 of the Billboard Hot 100 and three albums crack the top 10 of the Billboard 200, and been nominated for nine Grammys, winning four, all in the same category, Best Male Rock Vocal Performance, four years in a row, a record, in 1999 for Fly Away, 2000 for American Woman, 2001 for Again, and 2002 for Dig In. For those of you who need more recent comps, Jay-Z, One of his closest friends and biggest admirers has said there would be no Tyler, the creator without Lenny Kravitz and Steve Lacey has called Kravitz his role model. Now, just a few months shy of his 60th birthday, Kravitz is having something of a resurgence for Road to Freedom, an original song that he wrote for the Netflix film Rustin. He received earlier this week his first ever Golden Globe Award nomination. And next month, he could well land his first ever Oscar nomination as well. Last week, he performed it for President Biden and guests at a big Hollywood fundraiser and also on Jimmy Kimmel's show. And before the end of the year, he will receive a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Then, in March of 2024, he is set to release his 12th studio album, Blue Electric Light, and tour the world with it. Over the course of a conversation at the L.A. offices of Netflix, Kravitz and I discussed what it was like for him growing up biracial and half-Jewish, and how music became a central part of his life from a very early age, why he turned down a rich record deal even when he was living out of the back of a rented car after leaving home at 15, and why he then ultimately signed with a label that admitted it wasn't sure what to do with him. We talked about the resistance that he encountered from music critics even as his popularity soared with the release of early singles like Let Love Rule and It Ain't Over Till It's Over, and the origin stories of his other greatest hits, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Lenny, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. And uh, for people who may not know, and and I certainly recommend they read your book to find out more about this, but 
Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, <laughs> New York. Uh, my mother was an actress. My father was a journalist. He had many jobs. Uh, he was producing shows at NBC. He was an assignment editor. Uh, he was a correspondent. He went to Vietnam. Uh, he used to work with another gentleman uh, that you might remember, Peter Arnett. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and but at the time my parents met at Rockefeller Plaza, my mother was a secretary. She was a secretary for an executive, um, and uh, she was doing theater at night. Yeah, and yeah. we'll get into the the moment when her career really took off because it has an effect on you, of course. But one thing that you know you've you've really written about beautifully, and it's an interesting, rare perspective, is you know growing up biracial mm-hmm. with the name Lenny Kravitz, mm-hmm. uh, just how. That was not something that was particularly remarkable to you until I guess you get to like first grade and all of a sudden people point it out for the first time. Um, how would you say it shaped you from then on out as a kid? Uh, being biracial? Yeah. I, you know, it's always been uh, a benefit for me. It's always been something that made my life uh, that much more rich. Um, and I was reared to understand that, that I was, you know, had these different backgrounds and that I should celebrate all of it. And I'm just as much one as the other. And it was beautiful. I didn't have any confusion. You know, you have different sets of circumstances when it comes to people that are biracial sometimes. Mm -hmm. They're either cool with it or they're stuck in the middle and they don't know which side to go to. And then people are telling you, you're not black enough, you're not white enough, you're not this enough. Uh, and uh, and then you have people that sometimes are trying to pass for one or the other based either upon their own perspective or a parent who say the child is has light enough skin to pass the parent might be trying to persuade them to pass, thinking my child's life will be easier. And then there's a whole bunch of confusion that comes with that. Thank God I had none of that. I had none of that. Uh, I was healthy. My mom was really smart in the way she raised me. Yeah. And uh, yeah. But as you were saying, in first grade, I went to school. The first day of school, your parents walk you to school and walk you to class. And I suppose that morning, my parents were the only ones that didn't match, you know? Right. And this kid took notice and stopped and pointed and said, your dad's white. You know, he yelled it. And uh, I didn't really understand what he was talking about. Now, I guess because um, you you had family, you've said in... Bedside, and then I think on the Upper East Side, you had obviously families of different backgrounds in numerous ways. You were exposed to maybe more culture and more music than your average kid, and yes. so uh, it was interesting to hear you talk about. Though there's a true like before and after moment for for music for you, mm-hmm. and that it was a particularly memorable day, not only because of the kind of music epiphany, but even just 
I guess, experiencing it with your dad, right? This was, I guess, your, what, about five? Yeah. yeah. The, the Jackson Five? Yeah. yeah. My father knew how much I loved them. I was, you know, I, I don't remember where I first heard it. Perhaps it was the radio. And, you know, they also did TV specials and stuff. Um, would appear on, you know, different people's show, whether it was, you know, Flip Wilson or mm-hmm. whatever. You know, they were on TV shows. And um, I loved the music. It, I, it, it really touched me. And I really heard it. And I identified with them as well. Um, I looked how they looked, you know. And uh, so my dad picked me up from school and we... Went and ate and did whatever, I don't know, until evening. And then he took me to the garden, but I didn't know what we were going to see. And uh, opening band came on, which I later found out from Lionel Richie that it was the Commodores. (laughs) But they weren't called the Commodores yet. I forget what they were called. So that ended and I thought that was cool. Thought we were going home. You know, <laughs> I didn't know there was two groups, you know, right. and my dad said, wait, no. And, and then I remember Aretha Franklin walking in and everybody freaking out and camera flash bulbs going off and she was wearing white fur and, you know, all that. And then the lights went down again and uh, everyone started screaming. <laughs> I don't know how I didn't re- realize who was playing. <laughs> You know, I mean, I was young enough, I guess, where I couldn't, I don't know if there was programs right, or right, things. Right. Anyway, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. And uh, they came on and blew my mind. Couldn't believe I was in the same room. Couldn't believe I was seeing them live. And yeah, then from that moment forward, that was it. You I, knew you wanted to I knew make I wanted music. to make music. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's incredible, I guess, because of your dad's, I think primarily because of his involvement with music and and the fact your mom was a pretty prominent person in New York, that you're, it's unbelievable the number of music legends who mathematically you shouldn't have known when, you know, when we think about like, these are generations ahead of you. Especially, yeah, at my age. Right. That's what I mean. Like, thank God, you know, all these pioneers, I mean, they were, in so many cases, they were friends, you know, the group of people that I was around from writers and, and poets and musicians and actors and, you know, uh, painters and sculptors and, what, you know, all that was incredible. Can we give a few examples? I mean, how'd you celebrate your fifth birthday? Duke Ellington. Yeah. <laughs> Sings to you. Duke Ellington. We went to, the, we went to the Rainbow Room. Right. Which is at the top of Rockefeller. Yeah. Whatever, it's yeah, top yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 60-something floor. Yeah, yeah. Great views. And anyway, they used to... They had a lot of jazz artists that would play the Rainbow Room. There was the Rainbow Room, then there was the Rainbow Grill. And uh, we went before the show for sound check, I guess just so my folks could say hi to Duke. And uh, he sat me on his lap and put his arms around and played piano. And I'm sitting there. I remember him being in this white suit and he had his hair was kind of silvery at that point. Slick back, really kind guy. And then we had dinner. The band came on. And then they said that, you know, there's a young man in the audience. <laughs> His birthday is is, uh, is is today. And uh, they played happy birthday. And 
He had a sax player named Paul Gonzalez. He came up to our table and played the melody, you know, and the band's playing Happy Birthday. And yeah, that was... It's amazing. And there, there isn't one picture, <laughs> you it know? It was a different time. Not one <laughs> photograph. Now, yeah. we can go on. I mean, Miles Davis, Lionel Hampton, Nina Simone. This is unbelievable. And that's just the music people because mm-hmm. then your mom, I know, through acting and uh, there's all and and. uh just the Tony Morrison's right and yeah. all these people. It's unbelievable. Maya Angelou's yeah. and Nikki Giovanni's and you know all these folks. So what happens? Rain Hansberry. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, unbelievable. So now, when you're 11, your mom. I guess it's great news for her. She's she's got this part. I probably initially just in the pilot, right? But but ultimately ordered a series with the Jeffersons, yes. Norman Lear, who yes. just who just passed, lost. yeah, and who changed who changed my life. I saw him a few years ago um, at something, mm-hmm. and I just, you know, I grew up with him since yeah. I was a kid, you know, and I just stopped him. I said, man, I, I just have to thank you because, you know, you changed my life. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be standing here, you know, if you hadn't hired my mother. And the reason you say that is because, so initially just you and her, and then eventually your dad, I guess, go out to L.A.? yeah. And well, she, yeah, he he saw her in this play called The River Niger, which was on Broadway. It was the Negro Ensemble Company that she'd been in for years. Yeah. She finally made it to Broadway, uh, nominated for a Tony for her portrayal of Maddie. Uh, and uh, so anyway, I guess Norman liked her for, from that uh, play and had her come out to Los Angeles to audition. I don't know which I don't know what she if she did a screen test or what mm-hmm. she did, I don't know. But he met with her and he said, You got the part. And uh then sat with her and said, Listen, I you need to understand you're gonna be playing the wife of uh a white man and do you have any issue with that? <laughs> and she pulled out her wallet and of course we're going back in time because that's how <laughs> you showed photographs, right. those plastic things. <laughs> yeah, of course. Where you go like that and all the photos right, right. are hanging in the wallet. And she pulled out a picture of my dad and said, that's my husband. And he said, uh, you know, you got see you fire. Monday. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and and so she uh, stayed out there, did the, did the pilot. And then, you know, who knows, right? It could just be a pilot. Right. That right. happens. Right. Came back to New York. They got picked up. She took me out of out of New York. I was getting ready to go into the sixth grade, and my school went from kindergarten to six. So this was like a big deal. Yeah, I was about to be at the top of the class, <laughs> and she said, "We're moving to LA." Don't know how long. Again, could be one season. Right. right. Could be ended up being eleven. Yes. <laughs> you know, but uh, we went to LA, and uh, my dad stayed back. Because uh, he was working at, at NBC News, and when she, when she saw that this thing was happening, because um, it became number one, yeah. Then my dad moved. So for you, you're 11. Mm-hmm. This brings in a whole bunch of new things, right? Skateboarding, mm-hmm. different music than you'd been listening to. Yes. Weed. <laughs> different, just different culture. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So we moved to. So I had a godmother named uh, Joan Brooks. And uh, she uh, was one of my mom's best friends. I think they went to Girls High together in in Brooklyn. And uh, I think she also worked, I think she also worked at Rockefeller Mm -hmm. 
center. And uh, she had moved out to L.A., so my mom gets this thing. Everybody's humble and chill. You know, we go and stay with my godmother. My mom and I are living on the pull-out couch in the living room. My mom's taking the bus uh, to CBS on, what is that, Fairfax and what? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Beverly or? Yeah, I think whatever so. it is Fairfax there. and Beverly, yeah. Uh, so, so we're at 4th and Ashland in Santa Monica. So she's taking the bus, uh, you know, all the way down 4th Street to, uh, I don't know if it's Wilshire, or something, and then <laughs> all the way to Fairfax, and then the next bus from there to, you know. And uh, because she was a New Yorker. Right, right. She's like, that's what we do. We take the bus. We take the subway. Um, As she's on that the lasted, one show. That yeah. lasted one season. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then she, because she didn't know how to drive. Right, right. Well, she did. She, she drove, I think, when she was younger. But she hadn't driven in many, many, many years as a New Yorker. And so she had to learn how to drive again, get her license. And, you know. So, yeah, we're in Santa Monica. My mom's doing the show. I'm used to New York City where as a young person, you come out of the apartment and the world is there. Right. And here, I, I remember waking up the next morning after we got to LA and standing on the balcony on at this apartment, four blocks from the beach, looking outside. There wasn't a person. <laughs> it was like a Twilight Zone right, right, uh, episode. Right. I was like, where is everybody? And very few cars just going by, you know, I see the beach and I had no idea what this was all about. Um, but I learned, you know, quickly, I made friends and this was the time of, uh, you know, skateboarding yeah. and I mean, and, and surfing. Yeah. I went to school with the brother of the guy who started Dogtown. Right. The guy's name was, my friend was uh, Mike Humston and his brother was Wes who started it. And uh, I remember him bringing in the skateboard and saying, this is my, my brother made this skateboard. It was like, you know, like the first one. And uh, yeah, got into that whole world. And then, you know, in New York City, I was listening to everything, but not so much heavy rock, more pop and soul and R&B and, you know, jazz and right. gospel. And so I'm hanging out in Santa Monica with all these kids whose parents are hippies. <laughs> And started listening to Zeppelin, got, you know, Zeppelin one and, 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 you and know, it was had, again, like an epiphany, and, right? Like that was a oh, first time you remember you heard when you heard Hendrix. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was like, what is this? Right. And cause I was already, I'd already had a guitar like uh, a couple of years before I left New York, an acoustic guitar. And I wanted to play guitar, um, but I hadn't heard that stuff. And that just opened my head. Yeah, and what's amazing is that at the same time, pretty much, I think you're juggling that music with also being at your at your mom's suggestion in the California Boys Choir, yeah. which is classical stuff. You're at the Hollywood Bowl, like this is a, talk about range, right? You're getting everything. Yeah, it was beautiful. You know, she was she was concerned with me being on the street, hanging out more than I should be. Because, you know, she had such, uh, you know, long hours. So she had a friend. Her son was in the choir. I went to a show. Um, I liked it. I met the boys. I met the, the director. And my mom said, why don't you 
go and audition. Would you like to be in it? I don't, you know, I, I like classical music, but it wasn't like my favorite thing. Right, right. But I thought, this is cool. And I liked the vibe. And as I said, I met some of the kids and I liked them. So I went, I auditioned, I got accepted. And then after you get accepted, you have to get trained. So I did a long training and then you graduate into the concert choir. And then, yeah, my first concert was, was 1976 or seven. Wow. Hollywood Bowl, Eric Leinsdorf conducting Los Angeles Philharmonic, um, the Mahler Third Symphony, which is a heavy piece of music. I bet, yeah. And uh, that was, I remember being in my little tuxedo, <laughs> standing on that stage looking out at the Hollywood Bowl crowd. I'm sure you've gone back and played there since, right? Yeah, I, but you know, I haven't done my own show there yet. Oh, okay. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it was Amazing. another mind-blowing situation. And then in being in the choir, I ended up singing in the uh, Metropolitan Opera of New York and, uh, you know, singing with the Joffrey Ballet. Um, Amazing. And recording with Zubin Mehta and doing all of these things, going on tour, singing with the Vienna Boys Choir. Um, and I learned so much from being around uh, really the orchestras. I mean, obviously singing, learning to sing in 15 different languages. And, you know, I used to sight read. I don't anymore. Because uh, after that, I just never did it again. But <laughs> I knew how to sight read. And um, and then being around the orchestras, I... I without even realizing it learned so much about harmony, mm -hmm. you know? And probably just maybe was that your first exposure to just the variety of instruments that are out there? I yes. think you can play like 15, Arranging it's unbelievable. And, yeah, and just how to arrange, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all that. I mean, that between that and listening to the records, you know? Yeah. Especially Earth, Wind & Fire. Those records taught me so much about arranging and Motown and, you know. So yeah, I was getting educated and sort of stockpiling all of this information without realizing that I was. Right. You know? So from being in New York City with my parents, going to all of these shows and being around all of these situations to LA now and taking all that in, it was a, it was a beautiful education. Amazing. So another one of these kind of turning points where things could have gone in a completely different direction, it seems. Who knows what your life would have looked like if this hadn't happened. But you've written about the fact that when you were growing up, you would buck heads with your dad. He was a tough guy, mm -hmm. a beret, Green Beret, right? Yes. Um, and eventually you had enough and you're 15 and you're, you, you're out of there, out of homes. And you talk about sleeping on couches in your car, uh, just like crazy, uh, you know, change from mm. uh, what what life had been like. And even while this is the part that I think a lot of people may struggle to wrap their head around, mm. even while you're basically homeless, mm. you're 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 making music, you're doing helping other people with their demos because mm -hmm. you could do all this different kind of music. And yet and you start to get a variety of offers from record labels, I guess, to, to do something with you. And even though you're going home to a car, right. you're you're saying no. What was that about? You know, I just thank God. But to this day, I can't tell you 
why and how. Because I'm a teenager. I'm broke. I'm living in a car. I want to make music. I want a record deal. I want success. And people are offering this to me. But it wasn't the situation that I wanted. It was either like, okay, one situation was putting me together with four other guys to make this sort of group. And then other situations were, well, we, we like the music you're making. We understand it. We we see that you have talent, but you can't make this kind of music. <laughs> and you'd hear that forever. It's like, what yeah. was it? can you describe what were you doing and what did they want you to do? I mean, I was doing kind of what I've always been doing, a mixture of of rock and roll and soul and funk and R&B and all that, but guitar-oriented, Yeah, you know? And they would say, no, but you have to do what's on the radio, this kind of stuff, you know? You have to be, you know, they wanted me to be more R&B of that time, right. of, the, of, the, of the early 80s. And uh, so in this one particular situation, yeah, I was offered this deal to be in this group and they were offering good money and we're gonna go to Europe and we're gonna record and we're gonna be on, you know, Saint-Tropez and da -da -da, you know, <laughs> it was just this whole thing, right? right. And, and, and put the album out and go on tour and this is gonna be big and, and something didn't feel right to me. And the other guys were in the room and everybody was saying, okay, let's do this and get the contracts together. And, and I just said, I can't do it. And they all got really upset at me, especially the executive, uh, who I guess felt I was wasting his time. Right. And uh, yeah, it got ugly. But it uh, it's interesting. And, and, and then went back to my, my Ford Pinto that I was living in. And so all I can say is that something inside of me wouldn't let me do it because it makes no sense that I didn't do it. And I could have thought, well, I'll do this now. Right. And later I'll, you know, how people do. They change and they leave a group or they go, you know, and then they end up doing their own thing later. But I couldn't do it. There was something inside of me that physically stopped me. And it wasn't even because you necessarily knew exactly what you wanted to oh, no, be I didn't doing, have the right? I, no, Because who's the Romeo Blue? That's I think the that's thing. The, right. I didn't have the answer. Right. Right? It'd be right. different if I already had, like, a completed album on my own right. and I believed in it. I had nothing. So it was just one of those things. I just couldn't do it. And everybody thought I was crazy. And um, I know that if I had done it, again, I would not be sitting here speaking with you right now. Now, for a while before you really broke through, you were inhabiting a kind of, I know you were a big David Bowie mm -hmm. fan and he had his persona separately. Yeah. For you, for a little while, that's this guy, Romeo Blue, which I'll ask you to talk about. But but another thing, which I, I don't see it written about that much, but I think it's, it. I got the sense it's more important than maybe people have acknowledged mm -hmm. for you. Again, this is, in the lead up to you finally getting a shot, mm. who's Michael Goldstein? Ah, well, I met Michael when I was completing Let Love Rule. So I was in LA with my wife at the time. We had just had Zoe mm -hmm. in 88. And 
I had to go to New York to finish my album. The studio that I was working at was in New York City, well, in Jersey, yeah. in uh, Hoboken. And I was working with a very, very talented engineer. Can I just interrupt the, for one second? Yeah. This is without a, you you basically independently are doing that. You didn't have- Oh yeah, that. I had no record deal. Right, so when yeah, you yeah. say you're, you're, you know, people should again understand, you're betting on yourself again. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, so we went to New York and then we ended up renting an apartment that was owned by this guy named Lee Jaffe, who was, uh, well, he was Bob Marley's, like one of Bob Marley's like buddies. He'd gone to Jamaica and became friends with Bob and ended up also playing harmonica in the band. He's the guy playing on three o'clock roadblock, playing the, uh, the harmonica. So we met him somehow. We rented an apartment from him. And upstairs from me is a guy named Michael Goldstein, who I'm... St- he passed f- a few years ago, but I'm still very close with his family, his wife and his daughters. Um, he was Jimi Hendrix's and Janis Joplin's and more publicist, basically. And uh, yeah. He, he believes in you before. He did. Yeah. He did. He, he said, you know, I understand that I reminded him of Jimmy just, you know, not, I'm not Jimmy at all. And, uh, you know, but uh, obviously the similarity of a, of a black uh, man and playing rock and roll and, you know, being the kind of person that I am and the vibe, it was, to him, it was like, there was his guy again. Right. And um, he taught me a lot and talked to me and would always lecture me and, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that. Don't do this, don't do that. And this is the way this works. And yeah. And this is as, again, you're, I, I think at the same time you're figuring out whether or not you want to actually be Lenny Kravitz rather. Yeah, than, well, right? I changed. Yeah, I had already changed by the time I got to to New York. But yeah, I, I, I had this Romeo Blue persona. It was kind of like if you kind of put Prince and David Bowie together or something. Mm-hmm. And uh had this whole look and this fashion thing going on and the blue contact lenses and and uh it 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 was cool but it wasn't I knew it wasn't me and it got to a point where it was it was it was it was just tiresome you know and I said I just gotta be me I'll, I'll be Lenny Kravitz you know but I thought that sounded funny you know the name itself yeah you know it's like a you know a lawyer or you know, <laughs> doctor, or, you know, um, you know, but I, I just, thought, I just thought it was a we- weird. I was like, this isn't going to work, <laughs> you know? Well, I think, uh, once people started hearing the music, so you finished this independently put together mm-hmm. album, I guess it's probably 88, 89. Yeah, when, yeah, 80, yeah. And you take it around and now all of a sudden people are, seem interested in working with you on your own terms, I guess. Uh, but particularly, you've said the reason you went with Virgin rather than places that were offering you maybe even more money was that they understood there's going to be a development process here that for you finding yourself, for them yeah. finding out how to sell I had you. two deals on the table. Well, the first one was Virgin. They were the first ones mm-hmm. that got it. I was granted a five-minute meeting because the executive whose name was... Uh, is Nancy Jeffries. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was by coastal 
And Fridays, she would get back on the plane from LA and go back to New York and then come back again on Monday. I don't know how she did that. <laughs> she did that for years. Right. And um, so I had five minutes. So I played a, <laughs> played a song and she said, wait here. Uh, I'm gonna go get somebody. She brought in this gentleman by the name of Jeff Aroff. He said that uh, he heard a song and then said, wait a minute, went and got another guy named Jordan Harris, who's his partners. And then she had to go to LAX to get on the plane. And they sat with me and they were writing notes as they were listening. And I'm sitting there, I don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> and uh, they said, do you want a deal? After being, you know, turned down and for years and no one understanding. And, and uh, then I got a call from a friend of mine who was at Warner Brothers, Benny Medina, who's yeah, yeah. still a good friend of mine. And uh, we've known each other since... He was working for Barry Gordy when he was like 16. Because <laughs> I, I went to school with Barry's kids. Right, right. When, when we were, you know, when I first got to LA. Right. Anyway, he heard that Virgin had was made me an offer. So his people over at Warner's were like, hey, isn't this, don't you know this guy? Like, what's, <laughs> So they had me come over. And yes, they did offer me more money. But I, 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 I sensed that, Jeff and Jordan and Nancy uh, really believed in me because they they were like we we don't really know what we're gonna do with you and how this is gonna work and what but we believe in the music and so I went with that and yeah. the, you know in terms of just I, I think this is all chronologically in the same and nothing to do with Benny no 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 for sure for sure um, in this time period after you started there with Virgin and. Let Love Rule is, I guess, going out or beginning to get ready to go out to the world. You're opening for Tom Petty, Bob Dylan, David Bowie, people like that. Those are my first tours, yeah. Unbelievable. And you and you have said, though, that the maybe the biggest thing, and it kind of maybe even has to do with why you spend your time where you do these, even to this day, and um, your fan base being located in certain places, different places. But the, you said the biggest thing was they sent you to Europe and specifically— to a festival in France that was the biggest game changer. Why was that? I guess just by virtue of the reputation of this festival. Uh, it was called Trans Musicale. And uh, we went and played it, little stage. I remember the curtain opening and the person, like I was here and the person, like right there, yeah. like right in my face. <laughs> and... Uh, we played it, they dug it. The next day it was on the front page of whatever newspaper. And that opened a lot of things up for me. So, As did France in general. Sure. France, started in France, England, Germany, and the Netherlands. And it's interesting because I don't know if this was maybe just an American's issue or a white people issue or something, but it took a while for American critics and journalists to kind of get you, right? I mean, they were, they were- They're still working on they're it. They're still working on <laughs> it. I mean, in those early years, it was always like, he's trying to be a, he can't possibly actually believe that he, you know, the peace and love and mm. heavy stuff. And, and they had a hard time accepting that. They did. And also they were the old gatekeepers and, you know, but- uh it's all good, you know. I used to bother me a little bit, and then I was like, whatever. 
I was making friends with Mick Jaggers and right. <laughs> Robert Plants and, and Curtis Mayfields and Al Greens and, you know, all these folks and Elton Johns and, you know, Joy Ramone and, you know, whatever, just folks that would be at my shows and be supporting me, Prince, yeah, you know? So I was like, it's all right, <laughs> you know? Now, just if it's okay with you, I'd love to bring up a few specific songs that I know have been really important to you. And obviously, I guess the first one we have to talk about is the title track of that first album, Let Love mm -hmm. Rule. It seems like it's almost your thesis on life, right? Absolutely. That's that. It all centers around that, and which it's is pretty amazing. That was the first album, the first single, and that's where it stands. And the phrase itself, even though, had been around even before it was a song, right? Yeah, I thought of it one day after I'd been walking around, and I wrote it on the wall next to the elevator on our floor, the eighth floor. Goldstein was on nine, we were on eight. And uh, yeah, I just, I just wrote it on the wall. Thought, let love rule. And I would pass it every day, every day, going to the studio, coming back from the studio. And then one day I walked in, I was coming back from Hoboken, and I passed it and I looked at it, and I went and picked up Lee Jaffe's guitar. There was like a an old sort of acoustic big band guitar, arch arch top, and uh, I sat down on the couch and wrote that love rule. Amazing, and that's the that's the first one. That album comes out in '89. Mm -hmm. Two years later, Mama said, which is album number two. Yes, let love rule have been about love in a way. Mama said was about loss, mm -hmm. right? Of or loss of yeah, love in a sense. I, I had experienced uh, a, a breakup that was very, very uh, dramatic and, you know, not easy for me to deal with. And yeah, so that, that, that record was that. It was through a lot of pain and, but uh, yeah, a beautiful record. Well, totally. And, and the, the one that, the song from that, and I think the song from all of your songs ever that maybe did the best on the Hot 100 mm -hmm. was It Ain't Over Till It's Over, mm -hmm. which, first of all, as you say, I know you're writing it from like a place of pain, but also, if my information is correct, you almost gave it away to somebody else. That's right. I, uh, well, I didn't think it belonged on my album. Don't ask me why. <laughs> I don't know. And then I, I took it into, I think it was Jeff I was talking to at Virgin, and I said, Smokey Robinson should sing this like a duet or something. Or, And then I think at the time, because Paul Abdul was hot, yep. and I think Jeff was saying, well, Paul Abdul, maybe Smokey and Paul Abdul, or I don't know, some kind of thing like that. And then I don't know who talked me into it. I can't remember, but I ended up keeping it. So many tears I cry, hey, so much pain inside. 
Now, that album also has Always on the Run, Fields of Joy, yes. Keep Going. But speaking of your being generous with songs, in between your second and third album is Justify My Love, which you— well, Actually, that was right after the Let Love Rule tour. Oh, was that okay? Yeah, I hadn't made Mama Said yet. Oh, interesting. Okay, I so— just, I just gotten home from the tour. So this was even an earlier example of of generosity. What made you say after you've got this song, let's let's give it to Madonna? I didn't think it was for me again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This this thing I I go through, and so I'd been hanging out with Madonna a little bit, uh, and a bunch of her friends, dancers and stuff. I'd see them in clubs in Europe, uh, and also she was close with a friend of mine, Jean Baptiste Mondino, who is a director and a photographer, legendary. He'd done a lot of stuff with Madonna. Anyway, I knew her, we used to hang out. And I thought this would be perfect for Madonna. So I called her and I said, I got a song for you. I said, actually, I said, I have a number one song for you. <laughs> um, I was pretty sure. Right. She, no, you don't. I, like, I do. Bring it over. So she told me what studio she was at, somewhere in Midtown. And I went with the cassette and popped it in and the whole room just kind of got still and she said, play it again, play it again. And then that was it. She's like, okay, let's, let's cut this. And the kicker is, and then it did go to number it one. It <laughs> did. It was her biggest hit for years and years. Right. And, and, you know, well, actually, okay. So Jean Baptiste, who yeah, yeah. I just spoke about made that video for justify my love, that beautiful black and white right, video right. in the hotel in Paris. Right. And uh, you look at it now and you say, what were they talking about? But it was it was racy for that time <laughs> right. for MTV. Right. And so it was banned. MTV banned it. So Madonna, being the genius that she is, uh, made video, videos, video cassettes, and sold those right. people were lining up i remember at tower records lined up around the block i mean and each one counted as a single right and the thing it i mean it just exploded amazing yeah zooming along there's so many that we could talk about but i don't mean to subject you to so many but to talk about but we got to talk about okay so third album 93 are you gonna go my way yes title tr first first two albums did great third one did exponentially great, yeah, right? Yes. Number 12 on the Billboard 200 of albums. The title single, though, one of your most widely known and liked songs, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of from the perspective of Jesus, I think you mm -hmm. could say, right? Yes. It came together in five minutes? Yeah. How is that possible? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I was at the time producing a singer by the name, singer and actress. By the name of Vanessa Paradis. Yeah, of course. And so she had just done an album with Serge Gainsbourg, who did her album before. Mm-hmm. And she, I was in Paris working, and she had her people reach out to me that she wanted me to do her next album. I didn't know who she was at the time, and then I found out who she was. I listened to her music, blah, blah, blah. I went down to the studio. Never got to meet Serge, but uh, met somebody she was working with at the time. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do your record. I was, just, I was just wide open. And so I was doing her album the same time I was doing my album. At the you know, same studio, same place. She'd have her hours, I'd have mine. So we were getting ready to clean up so that I could then go to her sessions. She was waiting outside and with her manager at the time. And this thing just appeared. It just created itself. So Craig's on the guitar, you know, my my bass player at the time, Tony Bright was on the bass. I jumped on the drums and we just started banging it out. And it happened so quickly, like we didn't know what it was. But we had to get it done. Right. right. And so there it was. A take, done, raw, and made a cassette, put it to the side, did my session with Vanessa for the next, you know, 10 hours. Went home, popped the cassette in, and I went, oh, shit. (laughs) This is something. Right. And just kept playing it over and over and over in my little boom box. And uh, grabbed a piece of cardboard, whatever it was, a bag, started writing lyrics. It just started coming. Went in the next day, did the vocals, and there it was. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, And again, I, I, I loved it, but having no idea that it would be any kind of commercial. Right. It couldn't have been farther from what was going on. It was so raw and uh, odd. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it just, there's this, um, it feels like an incline where you're going, Circus is the next one in 95, um, number 10 on the Billboard 200. You've got a bunch of other big songs on that. But the one that I think in some ways maybe produced the most hit singles, maybe, I, I'd have to double check, but five, your fifth album in 98, which includes a couple that I have to bring up. Yes. So Fly Away. Number 12 on the Hot 100, but wasn't even included on the uh, original album that you turned in. No, it was not on the album. How could that be? I was finished. I had turned the album in. I was down in the Bahamas at Compass Point. This is before I had my studio uh, in Eleuthera. And turned the record in. And then one day I was going into the studio to mess around with some amps and a guitar. So I plugged this Les Paul into this amp and started playing. And 
based on the sound of the amp and the guitar together, it led me to that area of the neck because it sounded juicy, you know? And I just started playing these chord combinations and these rhythms and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. So then I asked the engineer uh, to set up, you know, let's get the drums and the bass. And so then I started doing it. So I did everything. I was by myself, played the drums, the bass, the guitar. And so now I have this track and I thought, oh, that, I don't know. And at the time, Zoe was with me, my daughter, because uh, I put her in school in the Bahamas while I was working on that album. And I would drive her in this Jeep that I still have. I've had it forever. <laughs> um, it's just all rusted and about to fall apart, but it was nice then. Right. And I would drive her to school every day yeah. and pick her up and had a really nice stereo in it. And the road was, was alongside of the beach of the water, the ocean. And I would drive fast and just listen to it and listen to it and listen to it. And then finally one day while I was driving, it all came. I went in and did the vocals. And then I played it for a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine who was an architect. Um, a guy by the name of Michael Sizz, he passed a few years ago. And he said, but this isn't on your album. I said, no, the album's turned in. <laughs> he said, you gotta put this on your album. I said, I can't. The album, they've already gone to manufacturing the parts, you know? And he got really crazy. He said, you have to put this on your record. I'm telling you, it's gonna change everything for you. I was like, dude, whatever. It'll, I'll, I'll, I'll let it be a B-side of something, you know? Right. And then he got, he said, he said, if you don't put on the record, I'm not gonna talk to you anymore. <laughs> you're, gonna, you're, gonna, you're gonna completely blow our friendship. Right. I'm telling you, you're not listening to me. I'm. In, you're insulting my intelligence. <laughs> I'm not going to talk to you anymore if you don't put it on the record. So I call the folks at Virgin. I'm like, is there any way we can put this thing on the record? No, the record's done. But let it. But send it in so we could hear it. I send it in. They heard the same thing he heard. <laughs> and, they, and they said, uh, we're going to stop the manufacturing and we're going to put it on. We'll start over again. You Thank know? God. I mean, that's... And I had no idea. Unbelievable. Okay, now the, speaking of just like out of the blue stuff, because this was also added. It wasn't originally, I think, intended for that album, but gets added to it. Out of the blue, you hear about a, a sequel to Austin Powers, and they want a cover of a song from like 1970. Yeah, American Woman. Yeah, they were. And you're, you must be saying to yourself, "What the hell are you coming to me about this for?" I got a call from Guy O'Siri, and. Uh, I don't remember what he had to do with it, the film or who, or, I can't remember that part, but he called me and said, this is what's happening. <laughs> and this is the song you gotta, that you have to do. And I thought, that song's perfect. Like, how, how am I gonna do something with that, you know? But again, he was adamant, like, you, you gotta do this, bro. 
<laughs> so I start listening to American Woman over and over and over and over again. And then I just heard something. I had this, this idea to just break it down. I mean, it's just kick drum, hitting a hi-hat, and claps. Real broke down beat. And put the beat down and, uh, you know, pulled out the guitar and just started playing and putting it together. And there again, there it was. And they had to then stripe that onto the album <laughs> on the second pressing. Oh, my God. Uh, so, yeah, five had had additions. Amazing. Yeah. American woman, get away from me. Now, in 2000, you put out a Greatest Hits album, which was pre-existing hits, except for, again. Yeah, and I thought they were crazy. I, I'd, I'd only made five records. <laughs> and they called me talking about, well, let's make a Greatest Hits. I, I, I just got here. <laughs> greatest Hits? Right. How? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm five albums in. Right. They said, no, it's time. You've had enough. Yeah. Okay, and the only thing they said was uh, was Nancy Berry. God bless her. And she said, we need a mid-tempo ballad with guitar. And I never, I never sit down to write. I always wait until I receive something. I'm an antenna. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't sit down because it's today at 12 o'clock right, that I'm right. going to write from 12 to 5. And I'm not that guy, so... And, and it was so specific. This kind of song, this kind of tempo, guitars, ballad. And I was like, oh, God, okay, here we go. So I'm in the studio in Miami at my house, and I set up some sounds and uh, with my engineer. And then nothing happened. And I had to go to New York at some point. Uh, maybe a couple weeks later, and I was riding in, a, in the back of a car, and I stopped at a red light, and my window was down enough, and I looked over and I saw this beautiful woman, <laughs> and then she saw me and I saw her, and she drove off, and there, there it was. <laughs> Amazing! And uh, uh, I wonder if I'll ever see you again, you know? But I had the melody. I remember calling my engineer, and I was like, "I got this melody." All of my life, na, 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 na. you know, I heard it, came back to Miami, cut the track, turned it in, and yeah. Turns out there was a demand for your greatest hits because that goes to number two. The album song goes to number four. The next album, 
Lenny, number 12. I mean, it's just amazing. Now, one thing I wonder, though, because this is a steady, steady pace of putting stuff out mm. for, for years, did you have time to or, or choose to, like, kind of take it in? Because one of the things I remember is, the, the, you know, the greats, one of the great stats you have is that you get nominated for and win four years in a row mm. for best male rock vocal performance at the Grammys. Yes. 99 for Fly Away, 2000 American Woman, 2001 again, 2002, Dig In. Dig In, yeah. How many of those ceremonies were you at? None. What's that about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, well, I remember one, maybe the first one I was in Paris. I remember like middle of the night, uh, driving around again in the back of a car. I just been in this club, Le Bon Douche, which is this really great club we used to hang out at, and getting a call that I'd won. And I was like, wow, that's really? Like, I didn't even think about it, you know? And then one, one, one year I was in the studio, another year I was somewhere else. Oh, one year I was late. <laughs> Traffic. Yeah. So I've never been. Yeah. Still to any Grammys where you were where you were nominated. Or where you won. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. No. Now the other thing is you'd been around famous people. Your mother was quite well known. Mm. Your wife was well known mm -hmm. before you were. Now you become well known and I wonder how you acclimated to that. It's never, I guess, people say it's like there's nothing that can prepare you. You mm -hmm. can't know what it is. And you've said that it was at around the time that we're talking about when on paper you're at, you know, you're flying mm -hmm. that you were at a, at a low point. I mean, I think it was when you were going to be touring around 2002, you just put out a record, you're on the hook to now you've committed to be touring. Mm -hmm. And you've said like for the next few years, even though the music continued to be great, mm -hmm. you were not in a good place. You know, I was doing the work, but I, I was, I, I think I was just a little burnt, you know, and I would do the shows and I'd come back to the hotel and just get in bed and the curtains were drawn, you know, and I don't know why, you know, but it just was. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess I'd gone through a lot and I'd lost my mother a few years before and uh, it was just an odd time, Yeah, you know? And thank But thank God I still had the music, because the music, you know, whether you like it or not, you know, that's whatever. But for me, the music never suffered. No. You know, I was always having a good time in the studio. I was always using the music to express myself and talk about whatever it is I'm going through, you know. But it was just kind of a little funk of a time, you know. And I guess it just it shows you that somebody, on, again, on paper, look like, it's great. Yeah. And you just don't know. Yeah. And just a lot of people around, a lot of energy being taken or me giving it. You have yeah, to, you know, yeah, yeah. it's on me, right? Well, you came out of that just just as strong as before because we've got seventh album, Baptism 2004, yeah. number 14 on the Billboard 200, the song Lady yeah. did extremely well, 2008 album, It's Time for a Love Revolution, some of the best reviews you've ever gotten. I mean, uh, number four on the Billboard 200. I'll be waiting the song, which I think I know you say it's one of the ones that you're proudest of, right? Mm -hmm. With the bridge and everything. And then an interesting thing happens around there where all of a sudden you as a guy who'd never really, your mother had been this great actress, but mm -hmm. you had never really pursued acting. And all of a no. sudden you start 
appearing in movies and people are it's it's not a coincidence that one led to the next led to the next mm. um right it starts with precious in 2009 the hunger games movies 2012 2013 the butler 2013 is acting is it just because it it may be forced you to call on a different set of skills is that what makes it appealing to I you mean, i always liked it and i yeah. and i did things when i was younger i did commercials when i was a kid and i did a couple of plays and I think that my mother probably thought that that's what I would have done, but the music got me. Mm-hmm. And so I've always loved it. I grew up around acting. I grew up around all these great actors and love the theater. And I, I, I'm a cinephile. I love film. Yeah. And so I just got these calls. I never, I never auditioned for one of them. I just got these calls to come show up. Yeah. And I did. And uh, Lee Daniels was the first. Yep. And. Uh, it's something that I would love to do more of. Just, you know, I, I got this day gig. <laughs> you know? I think that's but, a fair but, excuse. But I will do more. Yeah, That'd be great. One other just amazing stat I think I have to note before we, we finally come to Rustin is that you are in the history books as part of something else that people may not realize. Super Bowl Forty Nine. Mm-hmm. it's Katy Perry, Missy Elliott, and you, mm. was and remains years later the highest rated halftime show ever 115 million viewers 150 still still. wow so i guess i just wonder for something like that is it just another you know you've played big arenas you've played big as big as they get but Mm -hmm. does something like that even get the kind of hair on your arms to stand up a little more or whatever i mean that thing is such a spectacle and it's so big and it's there's so much pressure because it's live and to the to the second (laughs) a lot of things have to happen yeah, you right. know all these sets and people and lights and sound and da-da. I mean, um, so when you're doing it, you don't even realize what's it's so big, right? You know, I mean, I played big gigs, but it wasn't uh, didn't involve all these different elements. It was just our gig, you know. We right. did we did a gig in Brazil in front of a million people. Oh my god! On Copacabana Beach, which was absolutely amazing. But this is a whole other kind of pressure. Yeah, and network. And, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a thing. But it was fun. Yeah. Nice. Um, okay. So you're going about your business, I, I guess, sort of coming out of the pandemic where you'd been for a long time mm. kind of by yourself in the Bahamas. Yes. And you hear from a guy, Bruce Cohen. Yes. Who's a great producer, won the Oscar for American Beauty. Yes. Works, in this case, working with um, George C. Wolf, who I think you knew already. Yeah. I knew George I met him when I was 17. I did a play with him. Oh, my God. Called The Me Nobody Knows. They were trying to get a production up in Los Angeles. And so they were doing these performances to raise money. But it never happened. But I. That's unbelievable. I didn't know that. And yeah. Bruce also happens to be my daughter's godfather. Is that right? Yeah. How did, how did, how did you and Bruce know each other? From Zoe's mom. Oh they were God. friends when, when, when I met her. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, so you hear from so, Bruce. So it's, yeah, so Bruce calls. and what is he, What's he asking? And at the time also, how familiar were you? Because I know a lot of people were not I, familiar with Bayard I have Wrestling. to admit that I was not familiar with him yeah. to the degree that I should have been. Yeah, yeah. Heard the name, yes. Didn't know the full story. I didn't like that. Mm-hmm. And I knew immediately, okay, this is, this is something that I need to do. Like, if I don't know about this, and I grew up around all these civil rights activists and folks, there's a problem here. <laughs> so, anyway, Bruce said, yeah, uh, George would like you to write this 
and titles for the film. And uh, they sent me the film, which I watched. And my friend Coleman Domingo is yeah. that I'd done The Butler with. Right, right. Who was a lovely human being and a, an exceptional actor. Um, just, he, he, he embodied that character. I mean, yeah, it's so good. It. And uh, I spoke with George about what he was feeling, you know. And then I called Coleman just because I wanted to hear if he had something to tell me after playing the man. Mm -hmm. And uh, he gave me his thoughts. And then I just waited. But, or the inspiration. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but it was due yesterday, which was the problem. <laughs> and again, I don't work like that. No, so uh, I'm just walking around the house. I'm like, God, please just give it to me because I don't know. Yeah. So about two days later, I felt something. I walked over to my piano, put my hands down, and there it was. If you're broken, I'll carry you. When I'm weary, you'll see me through. On this road, we will not retreat. Does it usually start with the music before the lyrics? Yeah, it was the it was the lyric it was the music and the melody. And then I wrote the lyrics. Now, George, I guess, had some thoughts apparently about the role of a trombone in this. Yes, he was inspired by this sound of the trombone choirs that you have in the Carolinas. They play gospel hymns, you know, and whatnot. And uh he wanted to hear that. And I thought that was just great. And I'm very close with the best trombone player there is, Trombone Shorty, who I've known. You know, I lived in New Orleans, where I bought my first house. And I met him through a mutual friend. And Shorty ended up going on tour with me for a few years. I think he was 17. He had to get a note, oh from, his, he had to get a note from his mother uh, <laughs> when he went on the first tour. And uh, after he left me, he went to, you know, do his own thing. And he's, he's just spectacular. And uh, so I called him. He was on tour. I'm in Paris. He's so gracious. He had like 48 hours off. He flew to Paris. And uh, I had it all ready for him and uh, put him on the track. Yeah. And then you guys bring in a, a choir. Yes gospel choir, which I wanted, which finding that in Paris, France was not an easy feat. <laughs> I didn't know one existed, but they, they, there is one. And uh, they were great and uh, finished the track in time and got it to George. He gave me some notes, made changes and changes and changes, got it to where he was happy. And here we are. And now when you, when you see the movie and where it comes in right after the the marches happened at the end there. Oh, yeah, and you hear that intro with Shorty. It's, and it goes right into it. It's beautiful. Totally. Well, with the last minute, can I just do real quick just some big picture sure. random stuff? I believe you have your 12th studio album coming in 
March. Uh, this is going to be called Blue Electric Light. Yes. Anything you can tease about that for people who are excited? It's a, it's a new spirit. It's a breath of fresh air. It's a new start. It's different. It's a celebration. Uh, it's beautiful. I'm sure. It's a beautiful record. Now, yeah. You have uh, the list of people who you've sung with mm -hmm. is crazy. I don't know how many other living people can compare their list to yours. Mm. I see Aretha Franklin and James Brown and the Stone, or, you know, you and Mick Jagger have done stuff together. And we right. could go on forever. If you had, you know, if you were forced, I don't want to say gun to your head, but whatever. If you, yeah. Who's the most talented person you've sung with? The most talented? Most gifted singer, let's say. In your in your expert uh, opinion, they're all so great. That's hard, but I'd have I'd have to say uh, that's hard because they're all you know they're all just so genius. But Prince and Aretha, I mean, it's uh, <laughs> that's pretty you know hard to argue. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just read a thing that you did. I think it was in Billboard with Steve Lacey. There's a lot of people like that who you were like their role model. You're the guy they grew up listening to and they love. Where with, you know, the new music of today, where do you most see your influence? I don't think about it. It's weird. But yes, in people like that, yes. And, uh, but then there's people that you don't think that would be like, you know, Taylor Swift, yeah. you know, she, you know, has told me how she feels about the oh, music and awesome. how she listened to it. And Again is her song. That's awesome. That's uh, uh, in fact, she had me write the lyrics out for her on a on a paper. Oh, so she wow. and she framed them. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, it's just it's it's a it's a it's a pleasure. It's an honor to be in that position now because I know how I felt by those that influenced me and taught me, and so you know by virtue of keeping on and being here. You get to do that for others, and it's it's a uh, it's an honor. Last one, you know, you and your music have always, as long as you've been a public person, been so optimistic. It's something that you took crap for in the early days. Mm -hmm. Now I think people have come around and they believe and they get it that this is who you are, and, mm -hmm. and they've embraced it. But have you found it harder to kind of stay optimistic, keep the music optimistic when? You look at just how divided and uh, you know problematic so many things are in in the world around us. I don't know if one could really argue that it's moving in the right direction. Yeah, I mean we are at an all time place of confusion, and it just amazes me that with all of the years we've been around, the history that we've witnessed the amount of technological advancements we've made and that we still can't settle a dispute without violence amazes me, you know? And uh, now with social media and all, you know, the way everything is going and I mean, it's just, you, you, you see the division so clearly and uh, and it's very hard to get the truth out, you know, because now truth is you know truth is your truth, my truth, the 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 alternative truth, right. and the other truth, and you know it's it's. 
but there is truth, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, so we, we, we've got some work to do. We got some serious work to do because we're, we're not in a good place. But I always remain optimistic and positive and try to do the best that I can do in my personal life. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, thank you for all the music. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's terrific. Oh, it was a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun, for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.